We're teaching a series on biblical prosperity. And so we want to go back to the original scriptures that we started with. Psalm 35, verse 27 says, let them shout for joy and be glad that favor my righteous cause. Yea, let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. Folks, I want you to notice a couple of things about that verse. One is, prosperity is tied to righteousness. And the other is, prosperity is a result of the things that we speak into our lives. Now, we want to go back also to some of the scriptures that Moses instructed and left the children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Deuteronomy chapter 11, and Deuteronomy chapter 28. And I've taken some extra time, each, uh, each one of the services on this subject, to go over these. And I want to keep doing it again and again because I want you to, uh, the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. I want you to build your faith in the area of finances, to build your faith in that which God's will, has, what he has declared to be his will for our lives. So I'm going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning in verse 6. Therefore shalt thou keep the commandments of the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness. Thou shalt not lack anything in it, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. When thou hast eaten and art full, then shalt thou bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he has given thee. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and are full and hast built goodly houses and dwell therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led thee through the great and terrible wilderness, wherein there were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. And thou shalt say in thine heart, My power and the might of mine hand has gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he sware unto thy fathers, as it is this day. The children of Israel were brought from the land of, delivered from the land of Egypt with a, a great and mighty hand. You remember the, the nine plagues and then the death of the firstborn that finally caused Pharaoh to relent and release the children of Israel to go to their own land. And then when Pharaoh changed his mind, he came out against, brought his armies out against Israel to destroy them. But God preserved them. He led them to safety and to victory through the parting of the Red Sea, and they passed over on dry ground. And then Pharaoh's armies chased in after them, and the waters came together and destroyed them. The children of Israel come probably two to two and a half years later to the edge of the promised land, the land of Canaan. And Moses, at the direction of the Lord, sent 12 spies in, one, one spy for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, to spy out the land and see what things were like in the promised land. And 10 of the 12 spies came back with an evil report. And that evil report was very simply, they said, we can't do what God said we can do. The people are stronger than we are. They've got walls, cities with walls around them that are very great, very high, very strong defenses. And so they let the things that they saw influence them and keep them out of the promised land. Caleb and Joshua were the two of the 12 spies that believed to God. They said, tried to change the, the mood of the people. They said, we can do this. God's on our side. 
So it really doesn't matter what else is standing against us if God's on our side. That was the position they took. But the children of Israel, millions of people, two to seven million people, depending on whose estimates you listen to, lifted up their voice and wept that night because they accepted the majority report. And God spoke through Moses, spoke to Moses to tell the people, to say to them, he established an everlasting, unchanging law. He said, tell them that I will deal with them according to the words they have spoken in my ears. And as a result, everybody in the story got exactly what they said. They said, would that we had died in the, in, uh, the land of Egypt. Would that we had been led from, into the land of wilderness and the whole generation died in the land of the wilderness, just exactly as they said. Caleb and Joshua, though, got what they said, too. It delayed them for 40 years. But here in Deuteronomy chapter 8, and really pretty much the whole book of Deuteronomy, is Moses' farewell address to the people. He knows he's not going into the promised land. He won't be the one leading them in, but Joshua will. And so he is, in his farewell address, encouraging the people as strongly as he can by the direction of the Holy Ghost to obey the commandments that God has set forth so that they can take possession of the promised land and have all these things that God said the promised land would be. Now again, we come back to the same thing that we just saw in Psalm 35, verse 27. Prosperity is a result of faith. The children of Israel dying in the wilderness was a product of their unbelief. But even unbelief is faith. It's just faith in the wrong thing. So here when Moses is telling the people, this is a land that will provide for anything and everything you will ever need. There's not one trace of scarceness of any good thing in this land. It's a complete land. It's, it's the ideal place to be, according to God's description. And the warning the only warning he gives them is don't forget God after you prosper. Don't forget that it was God that brought you into this prosperity. Don't get to thinking that it was your own hand and your own wisdom or anything else. Don't forget that God was the one that brought you into this abundance. And then he tells them, notice again verse 18 of Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's God that gives you the power to get wealth. What is the power to get wealth? Faith. The power to get wealth is faith. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So the faith that they're supposed to exercise is faith in God who promised them the promised land, who guaranteed them that if they would keep his commandments and walk in his ways, that no matter who, who was in the land, no matter how strong their enemies were, the land would be theirs. Deuteronomy chapter 11 goes further. And Moses keeps saying the same things over and over again. We're not even looking at all of them. We're just looking at a couple of examples. But he spends a lot of time, as I said, primarily the whole book of Deuteronomy, telling them what blessings awaited them if they obeyed God's word and walked in his, his commandments. But then the flip side, which we haven't looked much at, and I don't really want to focus on, is the curse that would come on them if they didn't obey God's commandments. So Deuteronomy chapter 11, we'll start reading in verse 7. But your eyes have seen all the great acts of the Lord which he did. Therefore shall you keep all the commandments which I command you this day, that you may be strong and go in and possess the land, whether you go to possess it. And that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give unto them and to their seed, a land that floweth with milk and honey. For the land whether thou goest in to possess it, is not as the land of Egypt from which you came out, where you sowed your seed and watered it with thy foot as a garden of herbs. They must have had some kind of um, treadmill-type contraption that would pump the water from their only source, which was the Nile River, out to the places where the crops and the, uh, the farms were. But the land where you go to possess it is a land of hills and valleys, and drinketh water of the rain of heaven, a land which the Lord thy God careth for, the eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year even unto the end of the year. And it shall come to pass, 
If you shall hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will give you the rain of your land in its due season, the first rain and the latter rain, that thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thy oil. And I will send grass in thy fields for thy cattle, that thou mayest eat and be full. Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived, and you turn aside and worship other gods, or serve other gods, and worship them. And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he shut up the heaven that there be no rain, and that the land yield not her fruit, and lest you perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth thee. Therefore you shall lay up these words in your heart and in your soul, and bind them for a sign upon your hand, that they may be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall teach them your children." Speaking of them, when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thine house, and upon thy gates, that your days may be multiplied, and the days of your children in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give them, as the days of heaven upon the earth. Now, folks, if you think about what heaven's like, there is no scarceness in heaven. There's no lack of any type whatsoever. So when Moses says, again, he's inspired by the Holy Ghost to tell this to the people, and then these words are written down that were inspired of the Holy Ghost so that we have a record of it as well. He's saying that God's will, God's plan, God's purpose for mankind is to experience a life here on the earth that's full, that's rich, that there is no lack that, we're, that nothing is missing, even as it is in heaven. Now, the last one, last passage we want to look at is in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28, beginning in verse 1, And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently into the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all of his commandments which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Blessed shalt thou be in the city, and blessed shalt thou be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, and the increase of thy kind, and the flocks of thy sheep. Blessed shall be thy basket and thy store. Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way and flee before thee seven ways. Then the Lord shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses. Notice that storehouse is plural. The Lord shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses and in all that thou settest thine hand unto. And he shall bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. The Lord shall establish thee a holy people unto himself, as he has sworn unto thee, if thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God and walk in his ways. And all people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of thee. And the Lord shall make thee plenteous in goods, in the fruit of your body, and in the fruit of your cattle, in the fruit of your ground, in the land which the Lord swear unto thy fathers to give thee. The Lord shall open unto thee his good treasure, the heaven to give rain unto thy land in his season, and to bless all the work of thine hand, and thou shalt lend unto many nations, and thou shalt not borrow. And the Lord shall make thee the head and not the tail, and thou shalt be above only, and thou shalt not be beneath, if that thou hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God, which I command thee this day, to observe and to do them. And thou shalt not go aside from any of the words which I have commanded thee this day, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods, to serve them. The rest of Deuteronomy chapter 28 is the curse, or the curse is, that will come on Israel if they fail to keep the commandment of the Lord. Well, you know as well as I do that throughout the history of Israel, they were out of God's will more than they were in it. There were very few periods of time where they kept the commandments of the Lord and walked in the blessings of God. Now, one time that the Bible tells us of, gives us some information about, is over in Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3 is when God begins to speak to his people and instruct them 
about how to get out of the, the curse that they're in the middle of. They've turned their back on God's instruction. They've refused to keep his commandments. And all the curses have come on them, even as God had said that they would. So let's start reading in verse 6, Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. God said, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Even from the days of your fathers you are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me and I'll return unto you, saith the Lord. But you said, wherein shall we return? Folks, I want you to realize this passage of Scripture, these verses that we're reading, is God's answer to escape the curse that they're under. He says, return unto me and I'll return unto you. He identifies that God, that he is the God that doesn't change. In other words, he's saying, I'll be just as good to you as I was to Abraham. Well, remember, God made Abraham very rich in silver and cattle and gold. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that money's the most important thing. But when they were under the curse and didn't have enough to take care of the things that needed to be done, money gets pretty important in those circumstances. And so God is telling them to return to me. In other words, start obeying the word again. Start obeying the word. And he tells them that they have robbed him. Let's go back to verse 7. Return unto me and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But you said, wherein shall we return? Notice the deception that they're under. They don't even know how they've left God. They don't believe that they have left God. But God answers and tells them how they have turned away from him. He said, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, wherein have I robbed thee? Here's the deception again on the part of the children of Israel. They're saying, we never left God. God's the one that left us. We haven't done anything wrong. And we certainly haven't robbed God. But God said, here's how you've robbed me. You've robbed me in tithes and offerings. Now, the reason that he says that they've robbed him is that Leviticus talks about the tithe being holy and that it belongs to the Lord, the tithe being the tenth of our increase. It's one thing, uh, one part of our lives that God has staked out for himself. And it has to do with our finances. Now, I want you to realize something else here. This is the only place where God specifically deals with finances to provide a fix for his children. There's one other place that's similar to it, a close comparison. But this is far and away God's number one fix for your financial situation, the mess that you and I get ourselves into. He didn't take them one by one and say, well, some of you have done pretty good over here, but others have been, uh, haven't done what they should have in this area. He simply says that the financial fix is the tithe. If God said the tithe was holy in the Old Testament, it's still holy in the New Testament. He just said himself, I'm God, I change not. So he's telling them the fix for their finances. He says that they have robbed him in tithes and offerings. And as a result, verse 9 says, you are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me even this whole nation. Now, folks, if God didn't want us to prosper, if God didn't want his children to walk in abundance as the days of heaven on earth, as he described it himself, then why would he tell them how to get back to that place? It's kind of like in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, where God tells Joshua the key to success. There's a lot of the church world, the modern-day church world, that doesn't believe God wants everybody to succeed. Well, then why did he tell us how to do it? He gave us a surefire means for success. He gave you a surefire means for blessing. 
So he gives them instruction in verse 10. He said, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in my house and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open unto you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive. Only place in the Bible God says, put me to the test. And it has to do with the tithe. Only place in the Bible God says, prove me or put me to the test. There are other places where Jesus spoke of evil and adulterous generations that were looking for signs. Here God says, prove me if I won't do it. Put me to the test. He goes on in verse 11, talking about what he'll do if they'll return to him. If they'll bring the tithe into the storehouse, he said, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall our vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, for you shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. Then he talks about what they've been saying. And again, it goes back to the eternal law of God that was first identified in Deuteronomy chapter, in uh, Numbers chapter 14, about verse 26, somewhere around there. God said, as you have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto you. We see that they've spoken in his ears the curse, not the blessing. Your words have been sought against me, saith the Lord. Yet you say, here's their deception again. Yet you say, what have we spoken so much against thee? What did they say? God says, you said it's vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. In other words, the people were saying it doesn't do any good to serve God because the evildoers and the sinners are better off than we are. They have greater blessings in their lives than we do. So what good is it to serve God? Folks, I want you to realize something else. In almost every one of these passages of Scripture that we've identified and read through, it speaks specifically about the, the operation of faith, specifically what, we, what they have spoken in the ears of God. See, tithing is not a formula. It's a principle, a God-given, God-inspired principle that when faith is mixed with it, will produce supernatural results. Now let's look back at Genesis chapter 14. Here's where the tithe came into being. I know a lot of times people claim that tithing was under the law. And since the law was fulfilled by the sacrifice of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, that it's not for us today. Here it tells us about the story of Abraham who went, gathered an army out of those in his own house, 318 of them, I believe it was, and went out against enemy kings that had taken hold up, uh, taken captive Lot, Abraham's nephew, and his house, and all of his goods, and so forth. And his, so he went and he delivered them, brought them back with him. And after they came back from this victory, Beginning in verse 18, it says, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. He gave him 10% 10 of the spoils that they brought back from this victory, military campaign. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take thy goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from thee a thread even to a shoelace latchet or shoestring, I guess, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou should say, I have made Abram rich. Notice something about Abram, as we mentioned before, in Genesis chapter 13, after he obeys what God told him to do and goes to the land that God sends him to, it says God made him very rich in silver and cattle and gold. Here in chapter 14, Abram 
is developing in his relationship with God. He's got some experience about God blessing him and God uh, increasing him and even his help in delivering nations that are stronger than he and his household were into their hands. And so he decides, we can see what his attitude was by the things that he said. The money's not important, as important to him as the blessing that God gave him in a variety of ways in times past. He doesn't want anybody to be able to say that, the, that Abraham's riches had anything to do with him, had anything to do with the military battle or the victory that they won. His relationship with God is more important to him than the money. Now keep that in mind, folks, because that's exactly the place that God wants us to be. God doesn't care if you have things. He cares about things having you. If our attitude is right and we maintain the right attitude and our relationship with God stays first and foremost in our lives, our first and, uh, first and foremost priority, there's no limit to what God said he'll do for us. Now, I want you to see something else. We looked at this briefly last week, but I want you to see it again this morning. Look at Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15 it said, after these things, beginning in verse 1, it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. You see that first phrase where it says, after these things? There are a couple of different phrases that are used throughout the Old Testament. This is one of them, after these things. Another is just the word and. When you see the Bible going from one event, telling about one thing that happened, to something else that happened, if it starts with the word and, then it's, in the Hebrew language, it's a connector. It means the things that were just told to us are connected with the next things that happened. They're not standalone events. And here specifically, it's telling us that the things that happened in Genesis chapter 15 were a direct result of the things that happened in Genesis 14. In other words, Abram paying tithes unto Melchizedek and taking the attitude that he had and that he did take concerning the money or the, the goods or the spoils of the victory had everything to do with what happens here in chapter 15. And it starts off with God saying to him, and really Genesis chapter 15 is probably the most important thing that happened in Abram's life. It's where God consolidates everything that he had promised him up to this point. He says, fear not, Abram, I am thy shield, thy protector, and thy exceeding great reward. The, word, the, the phrase exceeding great reward means vehemently increasing payment. Now, the blessing that God gave Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 turns into chapter 13 where it says Abraham uh, was very rich in silver and cattle and gold. But now God is saying that was nothing compared to what I will do for you because of your relationship with me and the attitude that you've taken. I want to say this as many times as necessary to paint the picture, folks. A right heart, a right attitude toward money will open the windows of heaven to you in a way like nothing else will. God said so. The thing that makes the most, uh, is most important to Abram is not the money. He wants the child that he was promised. So Abram said, Lord God, what will thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thy own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell or number the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Here's God's promise. Up to this point, he's told Abraham that Abraham will have a child and that he will have seed after him. But he speaks it in such a way that's brand new. He says, Your seed will be like the stars in the sky 
which nobody, of course, can number. Notice verse 6. And he believed in the Lord God, and he counted it to him for righteousness. This is the point. Abraham's been believing God all up to this point already. But this is the point that makes Abraham the father of faith. You go look at the New Testament, wherever it talks about following Abraham's faith, you'll find that there's a reference to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. He believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. God went further. He cut the covenant with Abram later in this chapter. God made a covenant with Abram and part of that covenant was you take certain animals and split them in half and then the two parties making up the covenant walk in between in the bloody spot on the ground between the sacrifices that were killed. Abraham didn't have to walk through it because Jesus took his part. Jesus took God's part too. The Bible talks about the burning lamp and the smoking flax. It's talking about a manifestation of Jesus himself making a covenant with God on behalf of Abraham. So Jesus represents man by walking in one direction through the sacrifices. He represents God by coming back the other way. The Bible even goes so far as to say in, Genesis, in uh, Galatians chapter 3. It talks about, uh, well, it's not chapter 3, it's chapter 2, I believe. Anyway, in the book of Galatians, the Holy Ghost instructs Paul to write that God preached the gospel of Jesus to Abram. In other words, he revealed his plan of redemption. He revealed the Messiah's coming. He showed him what would happen to his seed and how that it would all come about in the end. Here in Genesis chapter 15, he tells Abram about this, his seed, his descendants going into bondage in Egypt and after 400 years being brought out with the mighty hand of God's power. Everything changed for Abram after he paid tithes to Melchizedek. And just as important as the paying tithes was the attitude that he identified concerning his relationship with God versus money. Everything changes in Genesis chapter 15. He becomes God's covenant partner. Before then, he was obedient to God, but he stepped up to a whole new level now. Now, with that in mind, I want you to look with me over to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 tells us about another guy. It's the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus. I'm going to start in chapter 10 of Mark, verse 17. It says, And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Well, he wants the right thing, doesn't he? Not too many people come to Jesus talking about eternal life. There were a lot of people that came to Jesus asking if he's going to restore the kingdom to Israel. In other words, become a political leader for the nation of Israel. But this guy says, Master, what should I do that I may inherit eternal life? He knows there's something missing. And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, just one, one thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Now, folks, there is some documentation uh, is according to church tradition that identifies the rich young ruler at some point coming back, receiving Jesus as Savior, not during his earthly ministry, of course, 
but receives Jesus as his Savior and becomes the, the uh, uh, leader of the church in this area where he came to Jesus. I'd like to think that's the way that it went, but the Bible doesn't tell us that. So rather than taking a chance to read into this something that's not there, I want you to realize something. This guy's attitude toward money brought an end to his spiritual journey. The Bible doesn't tell us one thing about the rich young ruler. Now, Jesus gave him a fix, too. Just like Malachi chapter 3 was a financial fix for Israel. Jesus gives this guy a fix for the things that he wants. And notice what it says specifically about Jesus that sets this guy a little bit apart. It talks about how that Jesus loved him. So that must mean that his attitude toward money didn't change God's opinion or God's attitude toward him. He loved him. Jesus loved him, even though the guy wasn't willing to sell what he had and, get, and obtain treasure in heaven. But God still loved him. But this is as far as he went, as far as God was concerned. Now, another thing I want you to keep in mind is that if this guy did ever come back and receive Jesus as his Lord and Savior and enter into the kingdom of God, enter into God's family, what do you think God would have been dealing with him about doing then? Here's what I mean. When you got to get to a point, this is true for you, me, or anybody and everybody else. When you and I come to a point where God gives us instruction about what to do, we have two choices. And the choices are the same for everybody. We can obey or disobey. It's just that simple. But you can't go further in God until you finally obey what he said do. Brother Hagin giving his testimony about his healing. Talked about how that when he was bed, bedridden and almost completely paralyzed, not quite, but he had a little bit of use of his hands. He started trying to read the Bible. And it was a very difficult task for him because he wasn't lucid for long periods of time. But he came to... to uh, Matthew chapter 6, where it says, take no thought for your life. And he realized, God started dealing with him about how he's going to have to care, uh, cast away worry, cast his cares on the Lord and so forth. And he said he couldn't do it. And he said from that point, he kept trying to read and go further. But he said the Bible became dark to it, where before it was full of light, where before it was instruction and he was fellowshipping with God around the word. When he got to the point where he said, I can't do it. There's so many things I'm at the point of death. There's so many things to worry about. I can't just not worry. Well, he came to the point where he realized things weren't the same. And he knew exactly what he had to do. He had to go back and obey what God had told him before. Now, if he would agreed to do it when he first saw it, it would have saved him a lot of time and a lot of difficulty. But nevertheless... Just like the children of Israel had to come back to the edge of Canaan land after their parents' generation died, if you fail in one test, you got to come around and take it until you, until you complete it. Therefore, the rich young ruler, if he ever did come back to God, what does he have to do? He's got to go back and do what Jesus told him. So here's the deal. For the rich young ruler, if he is going to get closer to God, if he is going to take hold of eternal life, you can obey me now or obey me later when it comes to treasure in heaven. Can you see that? All right, then here's another question I've got for you. How badly do you think this guy wound up kicking himself for failing to take Jesus up on his offer to follow him? The Bible identifies that he asked the rich young ruler, Jesus asked the rich young ruler to become a part of his inner circle. I know that Jesus loved all of his disciples. I know that he was just as good to one as he was to all of them. 
But John made a big deal about him being the disciple that Jesus loved. And the Bible says the same thing about the rich young ruler. This was the guy Jesus wanted on board. But because of the wrong attitude that he had concerning money and his possessions, he missed out on what could have been the greatest blessing in his life. And he lost it over money that he wound up having to obey God with later on anyway. Now let's keep reading here what the disciples saw and, and understood from this situation. Rich young ruler was sad at the saying of Jesus to sell what he has to gain treasure in heaven. He was sad at that saying and went away grieved for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked round about and said unto his disciples, How hardly shall them... They that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. And his disciples were astonished at his words. See, folks, these are descendants of Abraham. They knew that the blessing of God, the riches of God, the wealth of God, the wealth of the world, they knew all that was part of the covenant blessing. So when Jesus says it's hard for people, rich people, to enter into the kingdom of heaven, that blows their thinking out of the water. They're thinking, well, wait a minute. God's the one that brought the blessing of the wealth of the world to Abraham and his descendants. Now Jesus is saying that rich people can't get into the kingdom of God. But Jesus answered again and said unto them, Children, how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. The problem is the attitude. Not the finances. Not the wealth. The problem isn't that this rich young ruler is rich. The problem is that he won't be rich toward God. Jesus goes on and says, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? Now notice their attitude. Their attitude based on the, the law and the prophets the stories that we have access to read for ourselves. Their attitude was that riches and wealth was in their thinking almost a requirement for being into the kingdom of God, coming into the kingdom of God. They're expecting all of the descendants of Abraham, all the children of Abraham. They're expecting them all to be wealthy people because that's part of the blessing that God promised. That's part of what God made as a, um, a part of the plan of redemption for Abraham, his covenant partner, and his seed. They're astonished out of measure. I don't know what astonished out of measure means other than their jaws must have dropped and they couldn't, they were flabbergasted maybe. And they said, well, but well, then who can be saved? They're thinking if the rich can't enter into the kingdom of heaven, that leaves the Jews out. Now, they were right in their understanding of wealth. They were right in their understanding that it's part of God's covenant blessing with their father Abraham and therefore belong to them and it belongs to us too, according to Galatians chapter 3. If you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. They were right on that part. But they couldn't get a handle on the trust in riches part. Verse 28, then Peter began to say, well, I missed verse 27, let's back up. After they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? Jesus, looking upon them, said, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say unto him, lo, we have left all and have followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that has left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands for my sake, and the gospels, but that he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time, this life. That's a promise of blessing, isn't it? But shall receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, and brethren, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the world to come eternal life. Now, folks, the Bible says about the gospel of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 4, 
I believe Paul was the author of the book of Hebrews, but whoever it was that wrote it, it was authored by the Holy Ghost. So the Holy Ghost is telling us concerning the Jews that the gospel of Jesus did not profit them because it wasn't mixed with faith in them that heard it. Again, faith is the key. God's plan of redemption that was described to us in Isaiah 53, 5. Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. That means he paid the price for sin, both the original sin of Adam and personal sins of each and every one of us. It goes on and says that Jesus shed blood to take the chastisement of our peace. That word peace is the same word prosperity over in Psalm 35, verse 27. He paid the price for our prosperity, our financial well-being as well. And then finally it says, and with his stripes we were healed. So just like Jesus paid the price, and that price was his own blood, for sin, that we might be made righteous through faith, physical healing, that we might take hold of the healing power of God through faith and prosperity, that we would take hold of the blessing of God, the blessing of Abraham, literally, by faith. Faith is the issue on these things, folks. Now here Jesus says the, the rich young ruler lacked one thing. There was one thing missing. What was that one thing? Treasure in heaven. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12. I'm going to start in verse 16. Jesus spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? Now, here's the point of the parable that Jesus says. So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Rich young ruler was rich toward himself, but not toward God. And that's the one thing that Jesus identified it had to be about, uh, by a manifestation of the Spirit of God. Because there'd be no other way that I can see that he would know that about the guy having just met him. The rich young ruler was very rich toward himself. He was more than willing to do things for himself. But when it came to taking what he had, liquidating it, and being a blessing to the kingdom of God, that was the thing that cost him. That's what ended his spiritual journey. Here's two men, one to whom God opened the windows of heaven, not just financially, but spiritually in a greater way than anybody else that we have knowledge of in the scripture. God showed Abraham things. When you, when you think about what God revealed unto Abraham when he made a covenant with him, then Genesis chapter 18, where the Lord comes down and, and tells Abram what he's going to do concerning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the judgment that will be passed upon them. Remember, God said when he came to visit with him, there were two angels that came with him. And when the time came, the two angels went from Abraham's tent where he made a meal for them or extended hospitality toward them. The two angels started going toward Sodom and Gomorrah. But God talked it over with Abraham. He said, shall I hide the things from Abraham which I'm going to do, seeing that he shall become such a great nation? In other words, he's saying, since I've got a covenant with this guy, I need to let him know what's coming. And that was where Abraham negotiated with God about if you find 50 righteous people in the city, will you destroy the city? Finally got down to 10. I'm guessing that Abraham figured that there were at least 10 in the city. But there weren't. 
And the Bible identifies that a part, I, want to say, I don't want to say it's the only thing, I don't even want to say it's the most important thing, but the Bible identifies that Abraham's attitude toward God versus money played a big part in him having a relationship with God in such a way that he's able to negotiate with God about the fate of the city. The Bible goes into detail in Hebrews. The Bible goes into great detail talking about how Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Now we understand that Melchizedek, I, I, I've gone back and forth on this several times and I can't say with absolute certainty, but it sure seems to me that that had to be Jesus. Because it talks about without father and mother, without natural descent. Who could that be if not Jesus? So at this time, I'm thinking that was Jesus. I may change my mind with some better information down the road. I don't know. But regardless, it was a supernatural occurrence. Because we have no information whatsoever about anything else concerning Melchizedek. But it talks about how that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. And the proof of that, again in Paul's letter to the Hebrews, the proof of that is the, the greater is the one that brings the blessing to the lesser. The lesser cannot bless the greater. And since Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek, Melchizedek had to be the greater of the two. Now, folks, on the whole planet, there was one guy that God had a covenant with, and that's Abram. And I think that's why the Bible makes such a big deal about Melchizedek being greater than Abram, who became Abraham. Because Abram, later Abraham, had a covenant with God to such a degree that God showed him what he was going to do before he ever did it. Now, folks, what did Abraham have to do with the goings on in Sodom? There was only one connection that Abraham had to Sodom, and that was where his nephew Lot and his family lived. So why didn't God just come down and tell Abram, the two angels are going into the city of Sodom. They're going to get Lot and his family out. But after that, I'm going to wipe the city off the face of the earth. See, that's the way that it would have made sense to me for God to work. I'm God, you're a man, I know what I'm doing, you don't. No point in trying to educate you on what things should be like or what things are going to be like later, any of that kind of stuff. But that's not the way it worked. Abraham had a place of authority with God, even under the old covenant. He had a place of authority with God. that most people just shake their head out now and don't even consider. By virtue of his relationship with God, the covenant that God instituted, Abraham was without a doubt the greatest man on the earth. And you did not want to mess with him or his. King Cheddar found that out. Look with me to Luke chapter, I'm, I'm sorry, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, let's start reading in verse 19. This is part of the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, lay not up for yourself treasures on the earth where moth and rust does corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. Now, you can't be saying it's wrong to have a storehouse because that's part of the blessing of God. But he's talking about the difference between your attitude toward being rich toward yourself, like Luke 12 talks about, or being rich toward God. But lay up for yourself treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust does corrupt and where thieves do not break through or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. Let's keep reading. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. Again, he's talking about being a doer of the word. But if thine eye be evil, in other words, if you won't obey the word, 
then your whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? That's what happens when we see the word and won't obey it. It becomes darkness to us. And we can't go any further with, with God or in God until we obey what he last told us to do. No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Folks, here's why this is so important. Here's why what we do with our money is so critical. Here's why the Old Testament tells us to honor God with our substance and the first fruits of our increase. The blessing is attached to it. So shall our barns be filled with plenty and our presses break forth with new wine. He's talking about abundance. He's talking about blessing. But here's why it's so important. It comes down to one and only one thing can be first and foremost in our lives. We will serve, we will worship one of two things. Either money or God. It doesn't get any simpler than that. Now I told you we're going to come back to the previous verses where it says, for where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. I know a lot of times I mess up and I quote that backwards. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It seems to us that it should be the other way around. Where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. But that's not the way it goes. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. In other words, it's not a matter of the good intentions you might have. It's not a matter of your heart to love God or your heart to do right with God. It comes down to what do you do? One of the things that Jesus talked about as faithful servants, we should strive to hear from the Lord at the last days. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. I think a lot of Christians must read that as what they're looking for from God is well, I know you meant well, so come on in. But folks, when it comes to money specifically, now the Bible doesn't tell us this about much of any other area in the same way, but it specifically identifies that when it comes to money and who holds first place in our lives, either God or money, it comes down to what do we do? Not what do we intend, not how much we have warm fuzzy feelings toward God but what do we do he says where your treasure is that's where your heart is in other words God says I can tell what you love by what you do with your money God can tell whether we love ourselves and are rich toward ourselves or if through our actions and folks the actions in this regard are so important because when it comes to tithing it's a matter of discipline it's simply a matter of discipline so where your treasure is that's where your heart is where you put your money is what you care about I've seen people buy themselves shoes that are a lot more expensive than any money they've ever given to the church. Now, do I care? For their sakes, yeah. Paul had to be pretty careful about this type of stuff when he wrote to the churches about gathering offerings from missions and uh, churches and people that were in need. And he made it as clear as he could to say, I'm not telling you these things about giving because I want a gift. And that's always one of the first things that the devil will try to say to people when they become convicted by the word. See, I know that if there's somebody here that doesn't tithe, or maybe we should say the 80% of you that don't tithe, whatever that number might be. 
One of the things that the devil is trying to tell those people is that I'm just trying to increase the offerings to the church. Well, there's no doubt about it. If we had more money, we could do more things. That doesn't mean we should. No matter how much money we have, we're going to do what God tells us to do. And we're not going to push outside of the things that God has directed us to. But your giving, your tithing is up to you. I've told you before, I don't know who tithes and who doesn't. I have no way to know. I might see your giving records for the year. And with some people, it's easy to identify that they certainly don't tithe. Because you couldn't live on 10 times the money that comes in from them. And in a lot of ways, I'm glad I don't know. And I don't keep an eye on the, on the church giving records very often. There are things that I have to do regarding the end of the year stuff and that kind of thing. But by and large, I don't ever look. The church operates at a surplus. And we always will. So I'm not under any pressure to preach something to try to get more money out of you. But there's one thing that I want for sure. I want you, all of us together, to live in the fullness of what God intends for us to have. And there is no way, absolutely no way, somebody that doesn't tithe can have an accurate picture of what God desires for their life financially. It's impossible. It just can't be done. So where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Your heart's not in the part where you tell God how much you love him. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. It comes down to what do we do. So what are you going to do? Are you okay with where you're at? I'm sure a lot of people will just say, well, that was an interesting series. How much longer is he going to go? But folks, there's a place in God when he really does own your heart and where everything that you have is up to, up to him to direct you on what to do. There's a place in God in that respect that you just can't get any other way. And it's, well, for me, it goes back to what Moses said in the Old Testament about the difference between Egypt where they watered the land with their foot as opposed to the rains of heaven coming down in the land of hills and valleys and so forth. You can live your Christian life with your nose to the grindstone just trying to bull through financially as well as other areas of your life. But there's another place where you find that obedience to God's word enables you to lean back and let God fill, the, fill your sails with the winds of heaven and carry you right on into everything he wants you to have. And that's what I want for every one of you. Let me close with one final scripture. I don't mean close the series. The further I go, the more I like this. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Paul writing to Timothy, who's pastor of the church at Ephesus, the largest and the most famous church in that part of the world at that time. Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute. The word distribute means a generous giver, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Now, I want you to notice that phrase, lay hold on eternal life. 
He's not talking about that they'll get saved. You wouldn't expect a rich man to be a giver or to be a generous giver if he's not already born again. So when it's talking about laying hold of eternal life, it's got to be talking about something more than just coming into the family of God and giving your life to Jesus. It's talking about taking hold of what God's real plan and purpose for your life is. It's about coming to a place where you know that you know that you know that God's on your side and he'll see you through to the place that he has for you to be. Paul calls it laying a good foundation. It's the same thing that Jesus referred to as having treasure in heaven. And again, it comes down to attitude. What are you willing to turn loose of? Or more importantly, what are you not willing to turn loose of? I think every one of us needs to make an inventory at least once a year. Go through all of our stuff and see what we cannot give up and whatever that is, get rid of it. Just on general principle to serve God and follow his direction. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your provision. We thank you that you have made a way for us to walk in the blessing of Abraham. Lord, if there's something that has our heart, reveal it to us. Quicken us according to your spirit that we might turn loose of that thing so that we stay ready to obey you rather than held in bondage by the things of the world. Help us lay aside every weight and the sins which beset us so that we are always ready even as it were with a hair trigger to obey whatever you direct us to do. We want to be people that you know that you can count on to instantly obey when you direct us to do something. Father, our desire is to go further and further and further in you and in our relationship with you. And we refuse to let any earthly thing keep us from that. In Jesus' precious